Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio-podcast. Hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Today on The Microscopist, I'm joined by Priska Liberali of the Friedrich Mischer Institute for Biomedical Research. And amongst other things, we discuss changing career paths. So all of a sudden, started a PhD in cell biology. I didn't know what the ER was. I didn't know. <laughs> so I started back on textbooks. Living in a multilingual household. Well, we also have like five languages at home. And uh, so... <laughs> The, the, the complexity there increased because everybody's Swiss and all of a sudden my kids don't know who to support at the European Championships. The importance of taking risks in research. It, it's part of, of changing and, and, and taking risks. I, I understand that taking risks sometimes is harder and, and, and especially... But for me it was the, the key to success. And why she started buying Lego during lockdown. So I buy build Lego for them, so they really love the Lego building part and, and they build a lot. And I, at the beginning when they were small I would help them, at a certain point it was a bit boring, so I just, uh, during Covid, I started buying my own Lego. Oh, in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi and welcome to this episode of The Microscopist. I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York and today I'm joined by Priska Liberali from the Friedrich Miescher Institute for Biomedical Research based in Switzerland. Friska, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Gosh, I don't usually say good morning or good afternoon because it times it quite nice. <laughs> times it, doesn't it? But I, I guess that's why I got my espresso this morning. I even put it in my Swiss espresso cup for you. Uh, so, Friska, my first question for you is what was your first degree in? My first degree? Yeah was my first degree in chemistry. So uh, let's say I did the master in chemistry in physical chemistry. I started in Rome. I first, I, I was born in Belgium and I lived between Belgium and Luxembourg most of my life. I did uh, finished high school in Brussels at the European school because my parents worked at the EU and then I moved to Italy for chemistry. So physical chemistry was the, yeah. So you did your degree in chemistry and yet here you are as a renowned biomedical research yeah. scientist which is quite a change and it's not even I, I guess there's chemistry involved but a lot of it in your case I guess is gene perturbations and and obviously microscopy how on earth did you go from chemistry to the world of the life sciences and virus biomedical research yeah, so while working as a physical chemist I did the master there and we had also very interesting results but I wanted something a bit more complex. And so I was uh, looking in, in different fields also, and I like to change and I like to uh, get out of my comfort zone and, and try something new all the time. And that's what happened in the past 20 years. So I started as a chemist and then I met my PhD supervisor that was Daniela Corda at that time, the biologist, cell biologist. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I fell in love with her and, uh, and her top. And then I thought, okay, just let's move. I had my PhD was about to start in chemistry. And I just went back home and I told my parents and my friends, I saying, I'm gone. I'm going to start something in, in cell biology. And when I started, it was quite challenging at the beginning in the sense I had um, 
I didn't have biology even in high school because I would do a lot of physics and chemistry and math and no biology also in high school. So all of a sudden started a PhD in cell biology. I didn't know what the ER was. I didn't know anything. <laughs> so I started back on textbooks and um, I became a cell biology on membrane trafficking and at the end, you know, but then was, then I missed all the, some of the quantitative aspects, especially for the imaging, because I would look at the images, they were beautiful. And so I did a lot of microscopy during my PhD. And there, so I really wanted to go in a more quantitative space. And so there is where I moved to Switzerland for the Institute of System Biology, where I developed a lot of uh, um, methods for it to be much more quantitative on the imaging side. And even there, I just didn't stop and we moved in. I was using 2D cell cultures and, uh, and moved in more complex systems. So a multicellular system, organoids, and then develop new imaging to tackle more. So this is my, my route. I don't know where I will be in five years, but I just like to change. <laughs> I, I like the fact that you said chemistry wasn't complicated enough for you. So you, you kind of put down all the chemists in one sentence. <laughs> and, no, and then... at, a, at a certain point, there was this discussion on um, had with a colleague is like, you know, the complexity in biological science, physicist or very reductionist, what are chemists in all this? And I think we are very data driven. So I, I, and a lot of uh, friends that are chemists that move into biology are very data driven. and. and so I think that's another complexity. So I, actually, I was going to also mention the fact that you didn't know what ER was. And I'd have thought back in, I, I guess, the late 90s, early noughties, uh, ER was George Clooney and a programme over in, uh, I'm sure that was... Uh... <laughs> Is that you? <laughs> actually, I, I, I didn't do biology at A-level uh, mm -hmm. and then went on to do biochemistry. And yeah, I, I guess I loved the biology part. I found it a challenge, as you said, a challenge, and you learn very quickly. But coming in at PhD level, that's a completely different complexity because I had lecturers to lecture biology and could catch up to comfort. Like that's that's quite something. And not actually, Dan Davis was a physicist mm -hmm. and did a PhD in immunology. So, so quite a, again, very similar. So I, I, yeah, I can't comprehend how you can pick it up so fast. But as a chemist. How did you find the, the randomness of biological results? Because as a chemist, you, you do you add A to B and you get C, and it's pretty much the same every time once it's optimized. That's not the case in biology. You, you do A to B and you get C, D, E, and F. <clears throat> then you redo it and you do <laughs> So I think that the, the biggest change for me on one side here that you already see how paper are written. So I would read these papers and there was an introduction quite big and then this result that were not huge and huge amount of discussion, huge amount of reviews written and rewritten. While chemistry is much simpler. You have introduction, results, and a bit of discussion, just simple, linear. This is what we did. These are the results, that's it. Well, the biology would already bring all this already just reading the papers i would just get confused on what that is actually the method and and then on the other side is really the experiment and nothing would work nothing was reproducible and so i, I remember my with my phd supervisor she was like yeah but this is you know maybe we should quantify differently and it's not 
And I'm like, for me, nothing is quantitative here. I'm counting cells on a cell counter. So seven cells did this, 10 cells did that, complete randomness. <laughs> and so this is why really for my postdoc, I then moved in looking at population of cells. So I would then count all the 6,000 cells in a well, count all their phenotype and to be very quantitative. So that was for me like a survival mode because uh, that was a way to, to deal with the heterogeneity. And even now in all our work, we use this. So this heterogeneity in the systems, both in between cells, between organoids, in a way, something we use to understand how they work. And we are not affected. <laughs> so we'll come on to the organo organoids a little later, because I think that's a really it's a key area to talk about, I think. And it's something we haven't talked about on the other podcasts, particularly in the importance of organoids. But just going back to your career to start with, so you, you were brought up in Belgium, stroke Luxembourg, yes. and, and through that time, you then went to Rome. Yes. To your degree, and then moved to Italy, and now in Switzerland. How have you coped with moving through so many countries? Because that, that's also a challenge in itself, isn't it? Yes. No, and the, plus, so both my parents are Italian, and the reason I moved to Italy is because everybody would ask me, oh, are you Italian? Sure. It's like, did you ever live in Italy? No. <laughs> so I, at the age of 18 or 17 at that time, I was still 17, and I would, for me, I was, I felt very Italian, but I never lived there. So it was very important to go and, and live in Italy for a while. Then I never felt really Italian because I, my favorite food is French fries because in Belgium and the pizza is part of someone else's food uh, growing up. So I think the change was, and at that time there were no phone, no Facebook, no Instagram, no, no social media. So it was very hard also to keep contact with many of the people. And, um, so the first change was quite, uh, and, and moving, I think with my parents was still okay. I think for, for many people who moving the kids around is so, oh, they lose school halfway, they adapt in a few months and they're even happy they have double the friends they can. So it's, uh, uh, I think for me that the moving, the moving into to Italy for the university was a bit tougher. I was also quite young, I was 17. And it was 2,000 kilometers from my parents and in a full different culture. So that's, I think, the hardest part. But then you get used to pack everything and unpack and change and change houses and change people. And I think it gets harder while you get older. So at 30, when I moved here, it was harder. Or 28, I think was harder because you get in another space. Some people already have kids, some don't. Uh, the, the school, but then you are integrated in a very local environment. So all of a sudden at school, most of the kids are Swiss. And so we are the foreigner, my husband is Dutch. So we also have like five languages at home. And uh, so the, the, the complexity there increased because everybody's Swiss and all of a sudden my kids don't know who to support at the European Championships. Then they <laughs> learn that Italy is the only one to support. But, <laughs> I'm sure your husband disagrees. <laughs> but yeah, when they play well, that's in the combination. Uh, so I think it's hard. And I realize when they also get to be six years old, they start questioning who we are, who I am, who is the dad, and how do we fit in a more, you know, in, in a different city. So I think moving was less hard. And, and then 
what the friend of mine always tells me is like she doesn't know someone that hates moving so much and still does it and does it because so I'm always a bit afraid of every move or what we'll bring and I like to organize everything and plan everything ahead and say okay this will happen and I, but actually every time is completely different than what you expect and I still like that too. So so here's a question where's your favorite country Belgium or Italy? Italy. Italy. Italy or Switzerland? It's hot, tough. Uh, for holidays, Italy. That's very diplomatic. Uh, you're either going to lose your Italian passport or get lose your job one of the way or the other on yes. that answer. Oh, but Switzerland is great. We call it our golden cage. You know, it's they, they, there's a lot of things that work, and especially being extremely outdoor, you know, winter skiing, the hiking, the, the lake. So there's the water. It's, it's, there's a bit of everything. The kids can go walking alone at school since they're four years old. Everything, the work is great. As a scientist, I think there are a few countries that are have a work culture and an environment as a scientist in Switzerland. But then there's Switzerland and the food is <laughs> and the wine is bad. So as soon as we, I'm just back from like four weeks in Italy during summer. But you can buy Italian wine in Switzerland. Yeah, and I drive through and I bring it. So I, I can do it, but it just tastes even better in Italy. <laughs> I'm not sure. A different glass. I guess you're wearing different glasses, maybe just drinking from different glasses. When you're... Know, and then you're in a different environment, the social environment, the interaction with people, the restaurant is, is quite different. So I really miss Italy. And I think during COVID time, I miss it even more. Um, but I don't think we'll be, we'll, we're, we are happy to move. We are not unmovable from here. It's just finding a place that uh, can compete with Switzerland is a bit hard sometimes. So if you don't mind me asking, what did your parents do? Because obviously they're Italian, moved to Belgium. So I'm just, just interested to know what was their career? What were their jobs? Why did they move? Well, they are po policymakers in a way. So they work, my father worked in the commission. So it's a writing laws and you know that's the and my mom worked at the parliament she was also the cabinet of the European president um, some years ago and then she moved to Italy she was also director for the European parliament in Italy so they are yeah EU uh, mm. one more at the parliament one at the European commission for so energy for example my father worked a lot for energy also in, in research so he did uh, he was yeah so there is some science in that background sort of yeah but it's more yeah it's a, he's an engineer and then but he also worked for hr he also worked for different aspects so he's and my mom did the history of art so she's a more an artist part she doesn't know much about biology or chemistry or i think when i started my phd i asked uh, her to listen to me for three minutes about my phd project so she could say what i do and so after I start speaking about protein and cells and membrane fission, and after one minute she asked me, but is a protein bigger or smaller than a cell? I said, okay, maybe we stop here. So then uh, so for her, my dad understands, he also understands more science in general, not really the scientific problem, but publishing world and tenure jobs and academic world on, on jobs that's not the easiest world I, so actually talking in publishing uh, your, your track record is stunning <laughs> uh relentless I, I think 
would be the, the correct way to word it. You know, from your early days in PhD and postdoc, you were, you were publishing in very high impact journals. You're still publishing today in, yeah, the, the biggest impact journals. <clears throat> you know, I always said, you know, we, we've got, you, you were very young to be in such a senior position to be so successful. And you could say, you know, we've got you in your prime, but your prime seems to have started a long time ago and doesn't seem to be ending. It's kind of, what might, what motive? How do you do that to keep such high impact publications over, even already over such a long time period? How do you keep that edge, that competitive edge going forward? On, on one part, I think is the changing, in the sense of being of being a bit fearless and sometimes maybe a bit stupid because I change. I started my lab on something I never did before. Started the lab on organoids. Never worked with. I the first thing I did when I started my lab with the startup fund from one brand was to build a microscope that I never did before. I never built a microscope. I hired a guy that said I can do it, and we said, okay, let's do it together. And I'm like, can you write the software for it? Yeah, sure. Well, let's try. So together we tried it, but the risk was huge. Uh, risk was losing all my startup that then would be a big thing. I could have been on the safer side and wait that some companies would have a commercial version that is coming out now, but I needed five years ago. So I could have been on the safe side and, and waited for the commercial one and do it like them. Well, we built that one. I actually didn't sleep for a few weeks because I was like, what the hell are we doing? And um, so this was, I think, one aspect, and, and it goes in a lot of things I, I do. For example, when I started the lab, I, as you said, I had quite some high impact paper from my postdoc and uh, for also the transition. But then I started something completely new in the lab. And then the first conference, I could have presented all the, but you know, I had a, let's say, a cell and a nature method paper that I could present would be a talk that would come out easily, would be all shiny and with nice figures. And I decided to present crappy data from the first three months I had in the lab. And I remember standing there in front of everybody and I said, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I, you know, but this triggered a lot of discussion, a lot of interesting people actually knowing what I was doing in the lab. Therefore, I was invited, not for my old work, but for my new work already. And I would have discussion with people in the field that were very excited and seeing crappy data and like a, this weird girl, probably at the time still girl, that would come up and you know, try to, to, to come also from a different field and, and trying to understand. So I think that was, that always helps me in the, and the other part is the motivation. I'm, I have this curiosity and this drive and sometimes I drive crazy my students, but I come always there with like new ideas and new things to try. And I tell them when they start in my lab, it's probably rarely a safe project. Because it's, yeah, I get probably bored. I'm not <laughs> in the HD spectrum, is probably, you know, on the, on the changing. <laughs> That's a huge yeah. risk to, to go from your, the field that you've plowed that, that you know is successful and will continue to be su successful for, for at least a short while longer. You know, instead of just <clears throat> like, a, like a good farmer would do and, and 
sow a different crop in another small field and see how it grows and then maybe bring that over. You just wiped out your field and but yes, and then I do things like starting organoids and you know starting things and get results that don't really fit. They fit a bit, but they also don't really fit. So I'm there and like, okay, let's do this. And I presented in front of everybody. And then uh, and, and the safe part, and I have my best friend from my PhD, and he did the same thing for his master. Uh, he worked on pre-Golgi, then he go, worked on intra-Golgi, then he worked on post-Golgi. <laughs> it's like that was the Golgi. If I have a Golgi question, I just give him a call. I think on one aspect is being okay in saying, I don't know. I just stand there and say, I actually don't know. My husband is a biologist and sometimes he makes fun of me and he asked me very basic, not basic, simple, but like, textbook question about maybe a field that is not mine. I might just not know it. I learn, I read, and I have papers here around, and I try, and I don't know it all. And I think standing there and saying, I don't know, I will figure out. It'll... And so that part, I come with no preconceived idea on how the system should work. So do you think that naivety is actually a benefit? Yes, but if you study. Of the naivety on the you know it, it's a balance and i have a you know i have students and physicists that have it's important to know the rest but doesn't have to make sure that that is the absolute truth so it, it's so i read a lot and then i try to to keep up and especially when i change and i i go to conferences so for example another thing i did when i started my lab is apply to conference changing field i have a lot of colleagues that only go to the conference they get invited to. While sometimes I don't go to the conference where I get invited because I can't and it's a field that is, and I go and I just go and I remember the first organoid conference I applied and I was, I got a poster. The second, and it was already a good second conference, I applied and I got a short talk. Third conference, I got invited and I was like, hey, <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's part of, of changing and, and, and taking risks. I, I understand that taking risks sometimes is harder and, and especially, in, but for me, it was the, the key to success is taking risk. And um, also now I change, I have a full gastroloid project that is early embryo and development and I went back to basic development I don't know what I didn't know what were the three million I was so go back to developmental books and uh, and recently I was again presenting at the full you know development early embryo type of conference and I realized a lot of people were there and I'm like again okay it, it's out of my comfort zone yeah and and a lot of effort to read up on new areas as well to, to build up that background and you mentioned uh, that your husband teases you with some easy questions and stuff. But you worked, I believe, with your husband for a short while as well. Yeah, even not that short. It was um, five, six years in my full postdoc. Uh, we met uh, before, I joined his lab three years before I was during my PhD. The meanwhile, I finished a PhD, he started his lab, and uh, we both do a lot of imaging and quantitative imaging. And um, and so when it was time to start my postdoc, uh, was the decision was to 
go somewhere where I might not like it as much as doing something together. We make we made few deals on making sure everything was okay because we were already uh, almost married. We were about to get married, and so the institute was approving it. The the, the university, you know, that everything was clear yeah. because that's I think it's. Uh, and that I would be always on fellowships almost. I was almost all the time on fellowship. That helped me for some mental independence, but actually people don't see this. And so I think that was the hardest. My PhD supervisor was telling me that was a suicidal move for my career. And she was probably a bit, yeah. yeah but the, the risk was again, very high. If we would not have worked out, it's very hard. I went on the job market without a reference letter from my postdoc supervisor. Because yeah, it's a bit ridiculous to have my husband's uh, reference letter. So what I did at the end of my postdoc, I visited different places. So that's also uh, I changed quite a bit to make sure that people would see the independence, also externally and also for me. So I would start also being in a different field, and that also helped. Um, but I went to visit uh, three different labs. So I went in Hans Glaver's lab for the organoid for some months. I went to Janelia to then uh, to Eric Betzik for, um, and especially there they have the uh, imaging facility where you can go and, and so to try the lattice light sheet and different light sheet microscope for the organoid and also to Dana Pierce lab at Memorial Sloan Kettering to then for the analysis and the single cell uh, measurements. So I think that was very important. So then I get, I got, but I had to do it in a different way. So I went in Dana's lab for two months and I had also small children at that time. My son was four months, five months, and it was Janelia, my mom was here. So it's, uh, yeah, it's not always. <laughs> so you sent some pictures kindly. I, I believe this is a picture of you with your husband, son and daughter. Mm -hmm. Somewhere nice and sunny. Yes. Uh, probably Italy, because it certainly doesn't look like the UK nope. or Switzerland. No, no, it's Switzerland. That is it's why Switzerland. this is the lake in Zurich. So it was the lake in Zurich a few weeks ago. We were just back from holidays. So that's yeah, my daughter and my husband. We were at the lake and we had dinner there and went swimming uh, at the lake. So it's, uh, and it's uh, my son that is now um, seven years old and my daughter that is nine years old. So I started the lab when they were one and three. So I, I was going to ask, you know, how did you, yeah, how good was it working with your husband and, what do you, when you get home, do you just talk work or what do you do out of work to, to distract and to, to have to balance that? And, you know, how balanced is it for your children? Because obviously you both got successful careers. Who looked after them? Who, who what, what happens there? Okay. So, yeah, th this is the, so working together was great. We work really well together. We have a, we have a very different, but clearly a certain point independent, it's his lab. It's not my lab. And clearly I could be a lab manager, but in his lab, but it was not uh, what I wanted and what would have been, I think, uh, uh, good for anybody. And so the, the moving was there. So for example, um, I had the two children, in, at the end of my postdoc and in a way in the transition and so I went for the to have the, the job in Basel uh, with my son that was a few months and I was uh, there the, the paper of my postdoc was accepted while my son was born so it was chaos but clearly there working together really helped in supporting each other I would go in the lab finish it would be here home so it was really 
very easy at the time. The parents flew in once in a while to help. But clearly when I, when I went on the job market, I had an offer here in Zurich, but the one in Basel was really great. And so I had a long weekend to think, shall I take a job five minutes away from home? Or shall I take a job one hour 40 from home? And I took the 140 from home, clearly, because how I am, I go for the, the crazy part. <laughs> and, um, and there, at that point, um, I took the job in Basel, but I decided to start one year after. So my son would be one year and a half, and I would have more time to finish some things. Um, and in the meanwhile, we found someone that lives uh, with us at home, is a woman that's over uh, 60. So it's like a grandmother that is no one's mom <laughs> and that helps and uh, she's extremely helpful also for the household mainly yeah. so then all my free time is really dedicated to the kids and having two jobs that are like this one it, they're very demanding but they also give so much flexibility because we you know there's rarely something that we need to go and there's no operation there's no this the flexibility this job gives is quite incredible especially if we both do it you know one especially when they're small would go to work a bit later and come back later the other one would come back so that helps for the 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 balance the the problem for example was with the trip especially starting the lab traveling to conference was very important so my husband has been very supportive and has traveled much less the first year of my lab to, to be able to, uh, uh, to accommodate the, the small children and, and having this person at home also gives a lot of stability. We speak about, about work at home, but not about details. This is something yeah. we learned also during the period I would be a postdoc. I could not come home and saying, oh, this person was so annoying today because it's also, he's then the boss of this person. So, and he could not <laughs> say, ah, oh, yeah. We try to keep away the speaking about people in the lab. I would have friends, I would discuss, ah, oh, cannot stand this person. You know, it's all the normal lab atmosphere. Yeah. But then, and people in the lab would just really like it. They really realize that for me, they would never, as I told them, they would never tell me anything I don't know. Oh, he doesn't answer my email. Oh, mine neither. <laughs> so it's not that all of a sudden it would be a different treatment. Or if they would have a period where they would be, oh, how can I get his attention or something? I would, you know, the discussion. And even if there were chats in the lab, I would not repeat them. Only if they wanted. Can you give a word? Or, so that I think always helped. Uh, the, the initial part being separated was really, I think, worked really well. Clearly for the kids, they're a bit nerds, yes. You know, they like, they know the difference between virus and bacteria very young. They have type of sentence they use it for people outside. They're like, okay, this is a bit nerdy, but it's part. And they built robots and they do that. Yeah, I, I, I remember so my children teaching them little bits of fun facts and then telling them never to repeat it to their friends when they go away because that won't go down well. <laughs> Especially when they take a, a torch and put it in their cheeks and their, their cheek glows red. I said, don't explain the fact that that's just a red light penetrating through. Just let them think, look, you can see my blood. That's fine. Just, just go with it. <laughs> and then, so, and once I think a few years ago, I gave a TED talk in Basel and then my daughter came along and then she was like, Mama, why are these people listening to you? <laughs> and so I think that that 
helped. At the beginning, it was a bit hard because Switzerland is a very conservative country. So a lot of moms in my daughter's school would not work full time. And so she would not understand. It's like, why are you gone? And, and why do you work five days or plus, you know, and they work two or three. And, um, but now she realized she can find mom on YouTube. <laughs> same thing she doesn't really get that mom is on YouTube or mom actually has some students that really rely on her and that uh, are, and that's what I told her it's like is your teacher there every day and it's like oh yes and also my student like to have me there every day and uh, I asked her do you love to go to her sport she's very sportive and, uh, and I said she said yes I would go there all the time and the same for me I found something I like and it's uh, and part of it is the science, part of it is the mentoring. I really like mentoring uh, young students, you know, young academics and so that's. So you mentioned your daughter likes sports. Uh, so you're an outdoor sporty person yourself? Yes. What, what sort of, again, thinking on the life balance, what do you do outside of work? What are your hobbies? So it's uh, the summer, I need to spend some time on a sailing boat. That is like first day out of work, I just go and I spend time on a sailing boat at least for a week or 10 days. This year was 10 days. So big sailing boat, not too, too huge, but like where we can sleep on. And we this year we were in Sardinia or mainly Italy because that, but last year we were in Greece. And so being on a sailing boat and it's quiet, it's just, uh, it's, I, I love it. Um, then my husband does a lot of kite surf. I can stand on a so, so this is, is this one yeah. of your... Yeah. So here okay. it was, this year we were entering Bonifacio. So that was entering the harbor in Bonifacio between Sardinia, so it was in Corsica. And that is, is great. So that's my son, my husband, and my, and my daughter. We are just there and I, yeah, I, I really recharge all the batteries there. And I think it's great. And then Anything. I grew up doing a lot of horseback riding, uh, and now is anything that can be done. So in winter, a lot of skiing. We ski a lot. Well, so I've, I've got to get out of the way of this one. This yeah. a picture. So where are you here in this skiing picture? It's the Eiger Northland. So that is uh, next to Interlaken, and then you go. That is on top. There's like the highest uh, Jungfraujoch. So this is the highest train station in Europe. Okay. This, there so that is the Eiger north so there are a lot of also climbers there so that's uh, we were there for that's, that's a lot of children yeah but that mine are the green on the right and the, the, the right and the left one the middle we I was with my cousin and then uh, their family so and so the, there's a lot of skiing hiking yeah we went wakeboarding the the picture there was after wakeboarding on the lake and um anything that can be done outdoors is really something I like and that's mainly what I do when the weather is nice and then uh, what else I do I like I like to really to play with the kids and to do things with them I think the letter I got for my birthday from my son was like really and mom thank you I really have a lot of fun with you and uh, so that's uh, something I like so even when they do their Lego, I build my own Lego. That's what I do. So you, you build your own Lego. Yeah, so I, I take like Lego. Do you buy your children Lego and then build it for them? Or are you buying yourself Lego? And so they're building theirs and you're building your own. Yes, <laughs> the second one. <laughs> so I buy build Lego for them. So they really love the Lego building part and then they build a lot. And I, at the beginning when they were small, I would help them. 
a certain point was a bit boring. So I just, uh, during COVID, I started buying my own Lego. I realized there's a full spectrum of Lego that, that goes from full bouquet of flowers that you can build of Lego and uh, or vans, a Volkswagen van or cities. There's a, a Lego architecture. <laughs> have, you, have you got some examples? Uh, yes, I can take it. I'm here on the, the thing, the desk. Uh, let's see, I, this is my Volkswagen van. Well, you're not going to go camping in that, are you? But the, after building it, we said, okay, let's at least try it one weekend. And the thing this we miss here is still, I have this that I need to finish, is the light my bricks. So you can put lights in it and you can light it up and have really like the front lights, the back light, the retro. And so this is uh, my next project as soon as it starts raining. <laughs> Finished with my Volkswagen. Now. I, 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 do you know what? It's a really nice looking bit of Lego as well. <laughs> do the children not think I'm going to give up building Lego because look at what mom's building? I can't do it. No, they, no, they get uh, it's uh, so the Volkswagen. I would just go home and uh, especially uh, would sometimes go to the lab and then she would be doing it. So she started also managing. So my daughter now gets. Harder and harder Legos also for herself. So she's uh, really uh, uh, challenged with this. And then she helps me. And I think they they really like to see that it's something I also like, that it's okay, it's part of the game. And, uh, How many Lego objects do you have? Structures, builds? Yeah, can, so yeah. here you see some Legos that, so we have all the Harry Potter collection, you know, from the train station on the back, all the castles. We have few cities, a lot of older spaceships and all the Lego Technic. There's probably one on the back. You see a sailing boat there. This is a Lego Technic sailing boat. So I don't know. <laughs> I should get a new route. There's a, a uh, San Francisco city that I just managed to get out from there. <laughs> a lot of it. <laughs> so you haven't got them. Uh, but I, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with Ricardo Henriquez's work. These little, so he builds Lego pumps for peristaltic pumps, you know, for imaging purposes. You haven't started using the Lego in the lab yet. No, but we built our own micro. So we, it's not a fully, uh, uh, not with Lego, but we have it with the, we buy pieces. We have a workshop. And so, yeah, we built and now we are building our third microscope in the lab. Okay. And that's a uh, but with pieces because there the, it's like imaging that goes through for up to two weeks. So the folk, everything has to be really, and so we don't manage with the liquid. Maybe we should try. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want one other question actually from what you said earlier. You commute one hour 40 to work still. <clears throat> how, yeah, how, do, how do you commute to work? Hmm? How do you commute? Car? Train? I have first a Vespa, I'm Italian, like me. Yep. So I take the Vespa from home. So then I'm in nine minutes to the train station. And then I take the train and then, uh, then I walk or tram or depending when, when I'm in Basel. And then when I'm back, bzz, back with the Vespa. So do you work on the train? Yeah. It's like, in a way it's quite annoying, but I think with the commuting, it's easier that one of the two is very close to work. So my husband is five yep. minutes from work. So if there's something happening, he's really the, the, the one that is close by. 
and the other one commutes. But because the problem is getting to the train station, getting on the train, then if you sp spend 40 minutes or an hour on the train, doesn't change incredibly. It's yeah. even better. Sometimes you really have the time to open the computer, start something and finish it. Just the organization needs to be quite good that I'm on the train. And this is why also we had help here because if I would miss a train, I could not pick up the kids at school and yeah, the, the, everything would get very complicated. So we having someone at home was quite essential with the commuting and the traveling because if, and my husband is at the conference, they call me from school, the, someone got hurt, that happens with uh, mine quite often. <laughs> you need uh, someone that picks them up. And at uh, least, and then I have this person that can go and pick them up. Meanwhile, I'm coming back and, uh, and, and there. But the, so I often have, often, for example, if I take an eight o'clock train, not very often there's a train that goes directly to the Institute, but when it's there, it's an hour 15 on the train. So I take my Vespa, I'm an hour 15 on the train, and then I walk five minutes. Yeah. It's not when the day that are working well, are pretty good. I take the train at eight and nine fifteen in the lab. I take I leave the lab at four thirty seven. Four forty seven. I'm on the train. Six. I'm here at the train station. Six fifteen. Six twenty. I'm home. And you've got those two hours of work on the train. Yes. Which, which to actually either do your background reading or to be writing up and or reviewing emails, or, emails, uh, emails, and urgent. It's, and then, but then often then the time at work, the 9.30 to four is a doom, 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 doom. Yeah. lot of meetings one after the other uh, to make sure I manage to see everybody. I have all the things. So it's a bit of a calendar organization, but now I'm doing it since six years. So we're three. So I said at the start, you're working on organoids, which is, I would say not in its infancy necessarily, but it's still a relatively new field. Of uh, organoids, and especially or, there's a lot of challenges in imaging with organoids as well. So, for the viewer, listener who's not familiar with what an organoid is, what is it? And fairly briefly, what is it, and why is it so important? What is the advantage of an organoid compared to just looking at cells on a cell culture plate? Yeah. And compared to in vivo, so I think that it's, so the organoids are structure that are grown from um, iPS cells or hum adult, uh, not can be human, but mouse uh, adult stem cells. And in different processes, and every organoid is a little different, but can, that can recapitulate or development or regeneration, can create multicellular structure that uh, have the cell type composition, often also the structure and the functionality of some tissues. Clearly, we are not in vivo. So, what an intestinal organoid recapitulate is the property of the intestinal epithelium, not of the mesenchyme, not of the immune cells and how they react. And in vivo, that is another complexity that we would be adding. But clearly we have all the cell types and the structure with the crib villus axis. They are much more accessible for imaging than in vivo, but clearly they are 3D structure that are embedded in a matrix, and so, and they grow in very, you know, for a very long period of time. There are the different markers, so it's the, the complexity there. The other advantage is the perturbation space. We perform that 3000 compound screen image base for the organoids. This is something that you cannot make 3000 knockout mouse. 
So I, I think that is really a clear advantage. And what we are interested in the lab is really what we call this design principle of multicellular system, because you have a lot of properties that are higher order scale, you know, properties of the tissue that comes together only when you put together certain cell type in a certain organization. And the organoids are perfect because you can have this multi-scale, you have a very strong molecular understanding of the process because you can look at cell cells, the cellular dynamics, but the multicellular structure and how cell-cell interaction create these emergent properties. So <clears throat> what I find challenging with it, I, 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 the gene bit, that's your area. <clears throat> imaging, organoid imaging is not an easy picture. It's not a simple snapshot picture. How do you screen 3,000 organoids then? There, it's a, so we develop a full automated pipeline that then can do this. So it's the robotics, it's the clearing, it's the imaging, it's a, and with the high content microscope where we can then start doing it. The problem there is also then the segmentation. So we have a lot of AI and machine learning to really learn some network for the segmentation of the organoids. Clearly, the intestinal organoids are still relatively small compared to the big brain organoids. And so I think that will even increase the challenges. But very good time, we'll get there, I think. And then I would <laughs> you say clear, but you also do live cell imaging as well. Yes, so the compound screen was on fixed samples, otherwise. But there, this is why we built a new microscope. And the building the new microscope is not because we need a crazy new imaging technique, is for different aspects. For example, the organoids have an efficiency of 3%. So to have 10 vegans, you need to start from imaging 300 different organoids. You know, it's like you need to have. And so that is a bit the problem. So we need, and, and many of these live imaging, you have a single specimen. How many videos do you need to take to have a decent one? While here we can start with in parallel. So it's like a chamber that is specifically designed to do a multi-position imaging. The other aspect that was important for us is that matrigel, these structure are all over the place. They are not on a single plane. So we have, and there was more on the software side to align per position the, the, the light sheet. Yeah, the aspect is to have an environmental control that can have the structure grow with no contamination and with no evaporation and with changes for two weeks. And is the data acquisition and the data size on the terabyte. So you can imagine a three weeks movie. How, big is it? How many cells typically in a two-week-old organoid? Thousands. So just, to, I just, it's good to tease out because I think most people listening, watching, will have at least seen a single cell to give a, a sense of how much you can study within a single cell. But now you're looking at thousands, and you're not. It's no good just looking at one plane. You need to look at the yes, at least half the three D structure. Yes, the full 3D, but now we are designing a different one where we hope to get the thing. At least we can get the bottom. If we image from the bottom, we can see that. So what's your favorite imaging technique? It's really the combination. So what we do is that we do the high content imaging for something like 30,000 organoids and a time course. So we, at that point, have the average behavior of organoid over time. 
because if you have 40% of the organoid in a certain state, they won, and then 40 in the other one. So this is probably the population that grow in a certain way. But then you don't know the dynamics and the dynamical part. And so in a way you can overlay the dynamical information on this trajectory inferred from 100,000 organoid on the fixed mul uh, and multiplexed. So it's, it's really this interface between the two that uh, is, uh, and then with the light chain. This is expensive science. <clears throat> just, I'm just thinking about the cost of the reagents. If you're using pluripotent stem cells to start with, the, the reagents to culture those are not the cheapest reagents. To culture them up for two weeks with such a high attrition rate, because they don't all succeed, you've got to wait two weeks to see what succeeds. You're going to... It is eye-wateringly expensive. And the matrigel is something insane because you have also matrigel that's very expensive. Then we do a lot of with the human organoids and with human organoids, the medium are absolutely insane. So the expenses, and if you imagine a time course, so one aspect is the light sheet, and the other one is also a time course. You have these plates that are expensive. That's, and, and sometimes you do a full time course and the staining didn't work. Oh no, let's do it again. And, and you need to start from mouse to make these organoids. So you also need to host mouse that is also not cheap, and you need to host a petabyte of data that's also not cheap. And uh, so it's very expensive and a lot of grants. I write quite some grants. Well, so that, that was the next question. So when you're writing grants, they're obviously not the cheapest grants. Do you worry about the total cost or do you just write in the cost that it's really going to be to do the work? I don't put it all because it's, it's a combination of things. But if I put the exact cost, the problem with Switzerland is that salaries are expensive. So when, you know, also for ERC panels, people are like, are these seriously Swiss salaries? And they compare Italian salaries. And it's like, you know, with an ERC in, Swiss, in, in Italy, you make a full lab. In, in Switzerland, you make a small group. So I normally put, that, put it all, but I, try to be so one aspect I always had in writing grants is that people complain I'm too ambitious and that some things are not feasible well actually then we manage and then we do it it's just that some of the things we describe and I realize also with postdoc that apply can you really do 400,000 organoid in a time course and you know they think it's absolutely insane but we actually do it so I think that is the biggest problem I have is not only on how much it really costs, but what can we do that some people don't really realize that we can actually do it. And it's not a consortium, it's just the lab. But that's because most people can't. <laughs> it, it, it's quite mind-blowing you know, to, to go through that amount of imaging uh, and the complexity of dealing with it. Like, you know, it, it sounds almost unbelievable to image so much. But then as a referee, I'd be thinking, how are you going to analyze it? Everybody, yeah. Everybody in the lab programs. This is uh, my first PhD student. She had them to learn to program in R for the sequencing. And then there was MATLAB and Python. Now we can go just Python and R. So generally, that was uh, the biggest problem. They need to even, you know, sometimes they make a typo in the file name and they have like, 200,000 files that they need to change their name. So just for correcting that, they need to learn just to move the data, 
just to move the data. They need to learn how to program. And I have a full-time um, IT support just for the lab. That is how we do. And then uh, we try to build workflows. So one of our workflows is called Drogon, like a dragon from Game of Thrones. <laughs> and, uh, and this is, let's say, a web-based interface with also people that cannot program very well, that have a lot of standardized step in the pre-processing. Um, and the analysis is a big part of also of their work. How stressful do you find grant writing itself? And do you have a feel for your success rate? Yeah, it's high. On the grant is very. <laughs> it's uh, probably maybe one fellowship of a postdoc I didn't get. Wow. It's, uh, so despite the criticisms of the people saying, well, you can't do 400,000 images or this is really expensive because of Swiss salaries and not appreciating that. So I think that's a lot of credit back to the, the panel that are, then a, that are then taking that feedback and understanding yeah, yeah. it to a greater depth, maybe. I think something that is works for me that worked in this situation is that many of these panels for junior uh, group leader require an interview. And in the interview, I can actually show them that I've been already doing it. It's not me writing, I will do this and that. So I knew, for example, for my ERC grant, people, uh, I already built the light sheet and it was almost finished. And then I was saying, oh yeah, and I have a light sheet that can do the imaging of organoids for two weeks and then we can track single cells and blah, blah, blah. And I realized no one would believe me. I don't know if there's some gender in there too, but... Uh, it was people, I realized people are, so the first thing I did when, uh, and uh, ERC is really very much against having video in your presentation because they have very different format and their computer has an old window and maybe the plugin is not there. So they were really against, but I said that there's no way I don't show a video. So what I did was to go with the same video in 10 different formats the day before trying all of them to have one that would work on their computer. And the first thing I did, and my ERC interview was to show, saying, because this is how organoid grow. And I showed the video of an organoid growing from a single cell for two weeks. And I realized already there, the face of everybody was changing that, okay, all their doubt of the infeasibility to challenging work, gone. Uh, and so that I think was something that was quite useful for me, having the interviews where I could actually show the data and show the preliminary data. You know how to market your concept quite well, which is, which is a different skill again, isn't it? it, it it's that yeah. you know, knowing how to put the convincers. Yes, into I think that. It, uh, that is also sometimes hard because if I change field and I don't know all the knowledge, it's hard. It's not that I go there and I know the full literature of 20 years. And sometimes people in the panel know it better than I do in, uh, in their aspects. So I'm going to switch tack and ask you some quick fire questions. Yes. Are you an early bird or night owl? Night. <clears throat> I had to change with the kids. <laughs> if, if I could, night. <laughs> okay, thinking of being a, a, a night owl, tea or coffee? Coffee. I have now I'm drinking the tea just because I otherwise my caffeine level and even changing ginger shots. Ginger shots? Yes. What are ginger shots? So ginger with some lemon and then you have a little ginger like a shot. So it's like a coffee, but there's no caffeine. So you get some energy 
through the ginger and lemon and everything. And so I don't have less caffeine. Do you buy that or do you make that? I normally buy it at the train station at <laughs> my little place and then I have two for my day. So I get a ginger shot on top of uh, coffee. Okay. Avoid okay. afternoon coffee. I've not come across that, so I'm going to look that up actually because that sounds really quite, it sounds probably a bit healthier than the espresso early in the morning. Uh, wine or beer? Wine. As long as it's Italian? Yeah. Red or white? <laughs> Red. I, I, I'm changing. It was more white now lately, last year and a half red. Especially from Italy. Yes. Red. Yeah, yeah, and the white from Switzerland. What's your favourite food? Pasta with vongole. Okay. So not French fries, not, 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 not French food anymore. So. No, no, Belgian, yeah. It's, uh, let's say the, the Belgian food is my um, uh, comfort food okay. let's say the the go for the french fries so this is that of my uh, but if i have to cook something it's probably pasta with bone what's your favorite movie the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind you want to say that again the eternal uh, uh, the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind I think that was the full time. Is a movie where someone would start getting deleting their memories of a relationship that would go bad. Okay. And, then to, and then while they start doing this, they realize that in a way memory are important to, to grow. You don't want to erase everything and then the way it's uh, done. Then there was something, it's a movie of a few years ago. It was really something. Yeah. What would you do? You rather read a book or watch TV? Hmm read a book but I do more TV so in holidays I know when I'm I'm overloaded the first thing that drops is reading books and I know it's an alarm sign that I need to calm down a bit um, what do you watch on TV what do, do you watch anything that is anyone would be you don't watch that do you what is your trash oh yes I love a lot of trash Netflix TV <laughs> There's a lot of, but uh, yeah, I still watch Grey's Anatomy since 20, 18 years. Okay. I've been, as soon as I'm waiting, I know when the next Grey's Anatomy is out and I've been looking at Grey's Anatomy for um, many years. Uh, I watch Netflix a lot or now Disney Plus a bit more because it's the National Geographic and there are a lot also there, some aspects I, I like. And, um, and what music do you listen to? Uh, normally like, like lately all this maniskin that uh, won the italian the european uh, yeah uh, eurovision song contest eurovision song, so yeah. in then and some radio and now again with the kids they are taking over and what so it's a lot of actual pop and that's like coming but so did, what too. did you watch the eurovision song contest then <laughs> is that something you do every year no uh, not every year. Uh, this year, I think uh, we watched a part and I thought also for the kids getting older. So with all the different countries and everything and the new Maniskin was in there and it's group alike. Uh, and so we did, we watched it uh, all. <laughs> so, so Lucy Collinson, who you can probably know for the, the Clem and 3D EM work, and she's, she's an avid Eurovision fan. So actually, so I, she's been to see, she's been to the, the events as well. Uh, she'll always have a party. So actually that night I did watch Eurovision this year. I thought it was actually really good. I've got to say, I can't believe I'm starting to enjoy it more. But yeah, so I was constantly tweeting back and forth with Lucy about the different acts that were on it. 
Yeah, I think this year was actually very good. So I started watching. I'm not. I'm. I would more watch the European football championship. I'm more a football fan or sport. <laughs> yeah, I, I I loved the Euros until the final. Yes, I love the <laughs> final. I was really. <laughs> uh, I, I've got to say, I think you deserve the win. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> no, no, you were the better team on the day for sure. Uh, it was tough. I can imagine. Not a, it would have been hard for me not winning. <laughs> we heard earlier on about some of your inspirations, but who would you most like to meet? It doesn't have to be a scientist. Who would you like most like to meet and chat with? Mm. Difficult question. Sorry. Yes, I think some of um, early model of pattern formation in development. There's a lot of models that come that, um, for example, Turing. I would love to have a chat with Turing. Yeah, it's, there are models that you're still discussing, uh, models that, that were built on very, in a way, little data and some observation. So I think that would be something that that would, love someone out on the other side the core super quantitative sign like Lavoisier that would just start measuring yeah, and he started getting all the pattern you know in a, in a way yeah. if you imagine the, the periodic table is not very different from what we do now in biology they would be measuring a lot they would find pattern and then they would create a periodic table and Lavoisier started doing this. He would just measure a lot before the reaction, after the reaction, and measure and measure and try to find patterns. So also Lavoisier, I would not mind. <laughs> For sure, some like early um, female scientists, you know, uh, seeing probably the, the, the internal drive, the internal, um, you know, of a Marie Curie or being in these rooms. I complain that I'm in a room full of guys. Just don't know what would be her. Probably she would not even realize, but that could be something also. That's a good answer. And on that, thinking about it in the past, where do you see the biggest challenge in the future or the next big thing in the future, science-wise? Yeah, uh, I think bridging biological scales. I think it's to bring biology to a more conceptual science on some aspect. Uh, finding, you know, clearly every process will have their specific mechanism, but they have also more broader mechanisms. So, for example, this is how I would study biology at the beginning. I would take the textbook. So, apoptosis is signal, some protein that are activity, death. Okay, this is what I need to know about autophagy for a while. Then you go deeper. And there's the, but I think conceptualize science, uh, some biological process, and that's, you know, not, and bridging biological scales, understanding how emergent property arise from individual molecules. And I think there is some work that has been done already quite a lot on, you know, on complexes and protein-protein interaction, phase separation right now, and understanding how nonlinearity in protein complexes emerge, how nonlinearity emerge from interaction from cells. In, that goes from also on the mechanical part, the mechanics, the feedback. And this will be challenging both conceptually because we need to think in different ways. 
and, and not bridging. And, and I think now many scientists are bridging few biological scales. So more likely to sell some, some tissues, some cells, tissue, organism, you know, they, they, but really to bridge it quite well. And if you imagine a lot of developmental biologists and classical screen, they would go from a gene to the organism. They would have small flies, big flies, weird flies, and then they would know which gene, but these are actually just cells in between. There are actual cells in between. And for imaging person, it's clear, we have been looking at single cell for very long, but well, for developmental biology, the single cell is a weird entity. So I think, and that would mean that we'll have to bridge fields. I think that, and, and probably would go on the way we teach, uh, also undergrads yeah. and I think that will be the biggest and technically how can we have super resolution inside the cell tracking it for two weeks it's getting there things are moving that way but yeah there's big challenges yeah. I think that, that will be the challenging and, and, and where and you will and, and and the challenge will also to bring together some super resolution imaging people with the full organismal imaging that are normally field that don't meet that often. Yeah. How about live cell, uh, yeah, transcriptomics, live cell, spatial transcriptomics in a live cell. Now that would be mind blowing. That's, yeah. that's definitely not there yet. Oh, Big cell, yeah. Yes, but <clears throat> that'd be quite cool. And we have been talking for over an hour now. So, I'm going to ask you one more question, which is, what is your favorite work joke? Um, so I have one uh, that's uh, my favorite work joke. Uh, I have a recruiting joke uh, that I could tell, or uh, uh, because a recruiting joke. So a certain point is like person is uh, dies and goes to the doors of paradise. And then the person tells, uh, uh, St. Peter tells him or her that, you know, you have been so great in your life that you can actually go wherever you want. You can just choose. So you can have a day where you take a tour around and decide where to go. So they start and they go to hell and there's a huge party, huge, huge party, music, a lot of sounds. Yes, people are a bit sick on the side, but it was like huge party music and then he goes to heaven and it's all calm. Everybody has their hammock and they're reading and this classical music. So the person's really thinking and it's like, yeah, do I want to have this boring life all the time? And then, you know, shall I not go to hell? And then he goes and says, okay, let's go to hell. I decided. And then he wakes up and he's covered in shit. And then he's like, but where is the party? Oh, that was recruiting day. <laughs> And that's uh, what <laughs> that's the. Oh, I didn't recruiting. see that coming. <laughs> 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 day, and then you go back, and the actual truth, and that that is when you go for jobs, and it goes at all the levels. <laughs> you need to, the reality is, uh, but jokes are always hard. It's like um, this um, uh, this friend of mine that is a medical doctor, and she's getting more senior. And so, and she has really terrible jokes. Her jokes are not funny. But then one day she calls me and she's like, I'm really getting too senior in here. 
I got in a room, I make a joke, and actually people laugh. <laughs> the joke was terrible. So I think, I don't know, with jokes, I, I stopped making jokes during the talks because there's always this balance of people being polite and just laugh. And I, I think it's very good to put humor in talks. I think keep people keep keep people alert, mix yeah. it up a bit, and and they remember it. Yeah, no. I, I think people remember it. If there's a bit of humor in there, they remember what what preceded it and what followed it. I, I think it helps it stick in people's minds. Yeah. And it's very hard now to do it in um in a virtual setting. It's getting harder and harder because doing a joke during a talk, you need a bit to read the audience and see how it is, and maybe it's the good moment to do it. While virtually, that is all empty cameras. And yeah, especially if you pre-record it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's with no faces, no response. You don't even know the content, if they're sitting forward listening or whether they are, you know, it's hard to get that engagement. You just got to remember what it was like when it was physical. And yeah, yeah but it's also not the joke. I think that that part of the pre-recorded, one of the worst is normally that you are at a conference, you listen to the talk of other people. So even if you have your slides and exactly the talk can sound extremely different depending on the audience, what other people said, and then you re reference the, yeah. the talk before you. Ah, also, as you know, Pete said before, this uh, is very interesting because we also see this in our case, it's a bit different. It's very different. And now you pre-record, you have no idea who's speaking before or after you, and it's not the same. Yeah, I, with the Royal Microscopical Society meetings and with Elmi this yeah. year, we did as many as possible live. Yeah. Because uh, I think it's better for the speaker. Yes. More fun. They can see chat going on at the side. <clears throat> they can get a feel for it, but it, they can still do nods and interlink and interlace their talk with the others. Just gives it a more, even for the listener, the viewer, it's yeah. more exciting knowing that, it, it could go wrong, but it's real. It's not perfect. I think that's nice. And especially because the, the pre-recorded, you normally have to even listen to yourself. So you need to pre-record it, spend the time and record it well, and normally it goes wrong. The kids come in, and so you need to restart. Then you're just there. You listen to yourself to answer three questions at the end. So Yeah, and it's never good listening to, listening to your own voice. Never comfortable. Anyway, Priska, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank uh, you. And I, I, it's been really inspiring to hear everything. I love the fact that you chop and change so much and take big steps. And I hope that continues. Uh, I don't want you to stop doing organoid research and light sheet microscopy, but you know, I want the next big thing as well. So keep changing with the times. Uh, it's been really great listening to you today and everyone who's watched or listened to the microscopist today, I hope you've enjoyed it equally. Uh, there's been some great comments actually. We've heard about Eric Betsig, Lucy Collinson, Ricardo Henriquez with his Lego building. There's a lot in common with others. So please do go back tune and listen to those. And don't forget to subscribe to whichever your favorite channel is. And Priska, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, have a nice day. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.